1: He's a senior researcher at a place called Copsec. It's um, based out of Copenhagen. It's the Copenhagen Perspective Studies on Asthma in Childhood, is what Copsec stands for. So we're going to be talking about uh, what they're learning about childhood asthma, children with asthma. And then we're also going to be talking about um, how viruses in our gut interact with our microbiome, which will be super cool. So, Shiraz, thanks for being here. How are you doing?
2: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Yeah. So tell me first about your work at Copsack. Uh, at what what are the cohorts you're working with? What do they look like? And what are you trying to figure out?
2: Yeah, so basically, you know, uh, COPSAC uh, stands for the Copenhagen Perspective Studies for Asthma in Childhood. And it's it's basically a research center. And it's part of the Copenhagen University Hospital. And what we do here is that we, we follow like two cohorts of children. So a cohort is basically a group, right? So two groups of children. One of them was born back in 2000. The other one was born like, like in 2010, so a group of children that were born around then. So the first group is like, I don't know, like 19 or or 20 years old now. The second group is like 9 or 10 years old at the moment. And it's like around 400 and 700 children respectively. And what we're just, we're trying to figure out why does asthma occur? Because it's, asthma I think is the most uh, prevalent, uh, you know, uh, childhood chronic disease. And it's also the most important reason why children are medicated uh, the most important reason why children attend the hospital or attend vis- visits to their own you know a physician family physician and so it's it's actually a major burden on society if you think about it and and it kind of you know it's a problem that we still don't know in this day and age why asthma occurs and so that's what yeah. we're trying to figure out here right and so we're we're looking at these children and we're measuring everything that we can about these children so we know their their genome we know their environment at home we know what time what age they began began a daycare you know, what interactions they have with, you know, family, friends, what kind of food they eat, you know, everything that we can measure about them, we measure. And then we also have a a lot of these like omics measurements, like you call them, which is like metagenomics, genetics, genomics, metabolomics, and stuff like that, where you take like tests, different places in the body, and then you can kind of get a get like the chemical composition of the blood or you can get like the composition of bacteria in their guts or on their skin or in their lungs. And, you know, and so we, we end up with a bunch of data, basically. I mean, like really, really a ton of per child. And then we can take that data and we can like compare it to all of their stuff that we know about them, including their asthma clinical, like phenotype, but also like other stuff. And then we can find associations between the stuff that we measure on their body And whether they have asthma or not, or other stuff like allergy or eczema or, you know, other stuff like ADHD or obesity or whatever, then we can start making links. So that's basically what we're doing here. We're trying to make links to try to figure out what kinds of things in their lives causes asthma. Well,
1: okay. So how, uh, I'm one of those, not from that cohort. I wish I was. Uh, I'm older, (laughs) but (laughs) I've had asthma since I've been eight, eight years old. Now I'm (laughs) 44. So, um, what, yeah, what have you discovered about, uh, why people get asthma? Any indicators yet?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, asthma is like other chronic diseases, you know, in the sense, I mean, um, where it's different is that it occurs very early, right. In childhood, uh, you know, asthma can carry on into adulthood as well, but most of asthma that we know occurs in the child, in childhood and many children grow out of it, but you know, asthma is like other chronic diseases, which includes like stuff like diabetes or heart disease or, you know, cancer and other chronic diseases. And I think one of the common things about chronic diseases is that, you know, they occur. We don't really know why they occur. You know, there's some risk factors definitely, you know, like a Western lifestyle and stuff like that. Uh, and, and if you avoid those then you kind of can maybe avoid asthma, but still not 100%. And it's not only asthma, but it's also many of these other chronic diseases. It seems that there's a lot of the common risk factors and, and to be honest with you, we still don't really know. And I think the, 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 the prevailing theory out there is that it has something to do with the immune system, maybe. I mean, that's at least a big part of it. You know, there are lots of factors, but one of the major players in regards to asthma, but also other chronic diseases, is the immune system. And the immune system is designed to protect us against, you know, bacterial infections and viral infections. And, and, and for some reason, in people with chronic disease, the immune system causes inflammation in the body. So it starts maybe attacking the body itself in a way, instead of attacking bad guys like bacteria and, and viruses. And that, you know, places a toll on the body. With asthma, you see it as inflammation in the kind of in the lungs, right? Because the immune system is very overactive in the lungs. So it's basically destroying the lung tissue itself. But with cancer, you would see it like with, with systemic inflammation taking its toll on the body for years on end until, until you know, you, you develop cancer because there's so much immune activity, so many cells being killed all the time in the body that some of it develops into cancer. And and with heart disease, we see the same thing that there's a raise in heart pressure because the body is inflamed basically. So the heart has trouble pumping the, the blood around and stuff like that. Diabetes, especially type one diabetes is an immune disorder, right? So it seems that there's something to do with the immune system. And we have, we have found things here at COPSAC where we see that, you know, we, we did a, a clinical trial where we split the mothers in two. So the mothers to the children before they were born were split into two groups. Half of them we gave fish oil during pregnancy and the other half we just, you know, they just took the recommended daily dose of fish oil and one and the other group took like I, like, they, like a five times increased dose of fish oil. So like right. a really ton, ton of fish oil, right? And so what happens when the children get born is that the children who were born to the mothers who took like, like a lot more fish oil, than the ones who took a normal dose, they're like, they like a third less likely to develop asthma, which is like, what? And, and so fish oil is known to be an immunomodulator of some sort, you know, it plays around with the immune system in one way or, or another. And another thing that we found here at COPSAC is, this has also been found by other group, research groups internationally, but, but what we found here is that the children who were born by cesarean section, for example, uh instead of being born naturally they were being born they were born by cesarean section those children again had like a third higher chance of developing asthma later in life by school age or something so something that happens before you're even born or around the time you're born ends up determining whether or not you get asthma and we think a lot of this has to do with for example with the cesarean section our working hypothesis is that it has to do something with the bacteria that the children are born with you know when you're when you're born by cesarean section uh you, you the, the first bacteria that you come in contact with might be the bacteria from the hospital they could be like multi-resistant bacteria and stuff like that those are the first bacteria that enter your body whereas when you're born naturally you know you, you get a lot of bacteria from mom you know from the vaginal kind of cavity and also from the rectum you know and anybody who's seen a, you know a baby getting born can see it, it probably knows it can get quite kind of messy right and so there's a lot of bacteria going into the child there so 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 babies that are born naturally get mom's bacteria So that might be the reason why babies with cesarean section have a higher chance of getting asthma because they don't get mom's bacteria. So that's what we think. And so what we've done is we've gone in and done measurements of the bacteria on the bodies, in the lungs, and in the guts of babies. And then we've checked whether they go on later to develop asthma or not. And it turns out that the children who end up developing asthma have slightly different bacteria in their guts, in their lungs, on their bodies, different places. They have slightly different bacteria than the ones that uh, don't get asthma. So we think it has a lot to do with the question. Question here. Sure. Do you
1: do you think there is a microbiome of the of the lungs, and are there different ones for bronchus versus alveoli, etc.?
2: It's a good question. I think at the moment, you know. So my specialty, unfortunately, is not within the lungs, so I don't know as much about it as I would like to to actually answer this question in a qualified way. But what I can say is, I think still not a lot is known about the lung microbiome. You know, for for a long time, it was thought that the lungs were essentially sterile. You know, that was what you used to learn in textbooks, you know, when you wanted to become a physician. That was what you used to learn, that the lungs are essentially sterile. Now, the past decade, we've started to figure out that the lungs are by, by no means sterile. They're not teeming with bacteria the way that the gut is, right? So it's not like they're a home for bacteria as such, but there are lots of bacteria in the lungs you know, and, and, and different parts of the lungs might have different communities of bacteria, but we still don't have enough research on that yet. We just know that there are bacteria in the lungs. And our research here at COPSEC shows us that the bacteria in the lungs of children who go on to develop asthma are a little bit different than the ones that don't develop, develop asthma. That's all we can say at the moment.
1: Collecting like, why not have uh, children cough into, let's say a fabric where you can preserve what's in the cough or they cough into a machine that samples the air or their sputum i mean is anyone looking directly at what's coming out of the lung to see what's going on
2: i think i think that's i mean that's the way that we take a sample of the lungs of the children we basically put a tube in their in their in their throats until they cough and that's how we sample the bacteria and i think this is all of this is still at the research level you know that's all i can say you know so we're doing it in cl- in clinical research trying to figure out what what's going on in the lungs of these patients i think we're far away from some application you know uh, or, or you know some treatment or some diagnosis you know we're still very far from that this is still still very new stuff i would say that's that is that that's yeah, like,
1: like as as you were talking you know i thought hmm okay what about epigenetic you know heritable effects uh, dad smoked mom smoked sure. or they did this or that then there's the birth itself cesarean versus vaginal then there's you know the food there's the environment there's, mm-hmm. there's so many things to look at how do you even know How to tackle this problem.
2: (laughs) I think at the moment, I mean, we're just brute forcing it. And we're just, you know, that's how we're doing it. You know, if you, to be honest with you, we don't, we don't know anything, you know, we have no idea why these children develop asthma. We have some working hypotheses, some theories, a lot of those hypotheses are mutually, you know, kind of contradicting to each other as well sometimes, right? So that's why we have to be really open, you know, and the way that we're open is that we're brute forcing this. So we're looking at all the data and we're basically running against the asthma phenotype as if it was, you know, all equally relevant because we have no idea. You know, I mean, that's the problem. And, and yeah.
1: Um, any indicators so far? I mean, you talked about fish oil is a yeah. major difference. What about um, when children grow out of asthma? You know, not all do, unfortunately, but when they do. Hmm. is anyone studying that? Like, how does that happen? What age does it happen? What circumstance, you know, what's noticed?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. That's actually one of the, one of the PhD projects that we're doing here at CopSec has to do with that. You know, why do children, the children that grow out of asthma, why do they grow out of it? You know, is it because they have a different type of asthma, you know, and that's what we're trying to, you know, maybe asthma isn't just like one disease. Maybe it's like five or six different diseases that, that for some reason, you know, by chance tends to have the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, phenotype, you know, the same effect on the, so it could be like different diseases that have the same effect on the body. And so to us, it looks like one disease when in actual fact, it's like five different diseases. And maybe like two of those diseases are diseases that you grow out of eventually, but the three others are the ones that start later or are carried on into adulthood or whatever, right? So right now, we're trying to do what you call endotyping of asthma. So we're trying to, we all, based on all the data that we have on these children, we're trying to see whether we can distinguish between the different children that have asthma to see whether they have different fingerprints when you look on the data, right? So maybe for some, for, for some children, the type of asthma they have, the bacteria are really important. Whereas for other children, the asthma that they have, the fish oil was really important or whatever, right? So we're, we're still doing that. And that's still, you know, that's more research needs to be done. <laughs>
1: You mentioned that um, there are different phenotypes, different asthmas. What so what are they?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think we still don't know. what we can say is, you know, I yeah, you know, I mean, I guess uh, you must be tired of hearing scientists say that we don't know, we don't know, but we, I mean, we don't really. I mean, this is really I mean, I think 10 years uh, ago at least
1: you, at least you admit it, you know,
2: okay. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, 10 years ago, 10 years ago the paper came out, very interesting paper. I don't even remember the author right now probably look it up now but but it, paper came out where they look at these like time trends so where they looked at different children who had asthma and when they grew out of it so they basically did a lot of like uh, for example joe so you have children from the age of zero to 10 and then you would like every year or maybe every month look at do they still have asthma do they still have asthma do they still have asthma and you do that like for i don't know like a a, a few hundred different children right and then you could see the patterns like some of them had asthma in the beginning, then it faded out. Some of them had it, you know, uh, did not have it in the beginning, then it came later and stuff like that, right? And so you took it, you took, you looked at the patterns for all the children, and then all of a sudden, you know, these groups emerged, you know, groups of like early plus late, early minus late, uh, you know, not early, and, and, and then you had late and stuff like that, right? So there are like different curves when you looked at these graphs for different children. And that was like the first indication that you might have these different endotypes of asthma but still, I mean, that's, that's one of the only clues that we have. And we're still, we're still trying to figure out, you know, what's what and how do you even detect the different types? You know, we have no idea at the moment. It's still new.
1: Well, what about the, uh, the components in the in- inhaled air that cause the asthma? Like some people, you know, like I was allergic to cats all of a sudden, hmm. never until I was like 18. And some hmm. people with asthma are allergic to, I don't know, there's smoke for some reason causes their lungs to seize up. Like why not look at it that way? And, and group it by insult and yeah. by reaction to the insult. See?
2: I mean, so to be honest with you, we're also doing that. I mean, we're as I said, I, as, I, as I told you, we have so much data on these children. And because we have no idea what's causing the asthma, we're brute forcing the data. So we're looking at everything openly. Right. And one of the things that we found out, which was really, really surprising, I think, was that cats, you know, having a cat, you know, in the first year of life ended up having a protective role in terms of asthma and especially if your mom also had asthma, you know? So so maybe that's that's has something to do with the type of asthma that you have. If you have the type of asthma which you got because your mom also had it, so so kind of maybe a genetic type of asthma of some sort, then that kind of asthma seems to uh, you know go away if you have a cat, right? And that effect was really really strong. That was something that we saw here in Copsack and we published, you know, a few years back. And and like if you have a dog, so so I think traditionally I think that traditionally the kind of the common wisdom has been that if your chi- child is allergic, don't have pets, right? Don't don't have pets because that's just going to, you know, it's just going to, you know, uh, it, it's just going to worsen the allergy in one way or the other. And what we've been seeing, what we've been seeing in our research is that, you know, children who had pets since they were born were less likely in general to either have asthma or eczema. So dogs seem to protect, protect against eczema, you know, and and uh, so skin rash and stuff like that. And, and cats seem to protect against asthma.
1: Uh, well it seems like you know when you're when you're born you know you have a naive immune system everything is new about you so that's the time to inoculate yourself that's the time to get the quote-unquote right back good bacteria that's the time to be selectively exposed to certain allergens that can haunt you later etc when you're you know when you're very young and maybe that's why kids that have cats in the house when they're you know babies don't have problems like that because it's it's at a time again, when their immune system's naive and it can incorporate that and use it for later.
2: Yeah. And that's, you know, it's really, it's really cool that you say that because that's, that is actually one of our working hypotheses that we think that it has something to do with immune maturation. And while the kid is still like under one year old, the immune system has, is not fully developed. That's also why, you know, uh, kids get, uh, you know, they get antibodies from their mothers because they're still weaning at that point. Right. And they're, they're still, um, You know, uh, so they get a lot of their antibodies from uh, the mom's breast milk because they haven't developed their own at that point. But by the time they're one year old, the immune system has more or less finished maturing. And so what we think here at COPSEC is that a lot of it has to do with what happens between, you know, zero and one years old, right? And it has to do with immune maturation. And what we think
1: after a year of age, you know, kids have their own antibodies, and then you were just about
2: to exactly. And so and so what develops those antibodies is, you know, all the different insults that the body has been, you know, exposed to up until that point, right, different diseases, and then you develop antibodies against those. But you know, you also have a lot of good bacteria, right in the in the in the body. And for some reason, the immune system doesn't attack those so how does the body distinguish between good and bad bacteria, you know, the ones to attack and the ones not to attack? And so, and so that's kind of an open question at this point. And I think, I think you know, uh, or that's what we think here at COPSEC is that, you know, what, the, the, the bacteria that you were born with end up being the ones that maybe the body assumes to be the good bacteria. And so whether they're good or not, right? And so if, if you're born with the wrong bacteria, then your immune system is going to think that the wrong things are good and bad. And so the immune system might end up starting to attack the body itself once you get older because you were born with the wrong bacteria, right? So we, we think that it, it could be something, you know, like that, doing it.
1: How, how much of a correlation is there between cesarean versus natural birth and breastfeeding versus bottle feeding? You know, mm. both or the absence of one or the other on, on the uh, likelihood of asthma?
2: Mm. I mean, with what we saw with the cesarean section was that there was a 30% increased chance of asthma. If you were born by cesarean section and uh, and with uh, breast and bottle feeding, we didn't actually see anything. You know, that was one of the things where we were expecting to see something, but we didn't. Um, so yeah, Did I don't you know. Look
1: at uh, the case of cesarean and then breastfeeding.
2: That's a good More question. Or
1: natural birth and then bottle feeding. I mean, there's two crossovers there too.
2: That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't remember we've looked at that, but we might have. You know, one of my colleagues might have done that. I don't remember it myself, to be honest. Uh, but okay, we, yeah.
1: I guess there's, there's a lot of things to look at and all I'm doing is giving you more work to do, more things to look at, but it's okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think, I think, you know, another thing that we saw early, this was an early finding from COPSAC, you know, one of our first findings back in the early 2000s was that, you know, if children have lots of infections, you know, like respiratory infections, uh, you know, infections in the lungs and in the respiratory system in early life, like between their zero and one year old, then they end up having a much higher chance of getting developing asthma later, and so it seems that you know viral infections in the lungs can cause asthma later in life, which is you know weird. And and what we also saw was that the kids who had asthma, they had more bacteria in their lungs when they were really young. So we we, we waited until the children grew up and saw which ones had asthma and which ones didn't. And then we looked at the ones that had it and didn't had and didn't have asthma. We looked at their lung samples from back when they were still babies. And that's where we saw a difference in the bacteria. So the ones that went on to develop asthma had more bacteria in the lungs than the ones that did not develop asthma. And so it's... it's uh, I mean, but,
1: more meaning higher counts or more different species of bacteria? Yeah, what it seems like
2: there was a higher diversity and higher counts as well. You know, it seems like it was kind of both in, in that case. And so, and also the viral infections thing, you know, that was linked there as well. So, you know, early viral infections, respiratory infections. So we don't actually know whether these respiratory infections actually co- end up causing the asthma or whether these, this increased likelihood of having respiratory infections in early life by viruses, whether that's just an indicator of something else being wrong with the body, which then, you know, causes the asthma, right? So it, it might not be the virus is causing them. They might just be an indicator warning us that this person is going to get asthma later on in life, right? And so you never know with these things which way the cause and effect goes. What about um,
1: being in uh, daycare or not and the age at which you go in and how long you're in there? I would think, you know, then you're exposed to a lot of other kids that have all kinds of stuff. You know, kids get sick a lot in daycare. Um, did that correlate with more or less asthma later on?
2: Mm, that's a good question. I think we saw... I think there is a tendency in our data for daycaring being a risk factor. Daycare being a risk factor for for asthma, uh, and that does make sense, you know, by the rationale that you just gave. But we do we also see another association as well that children who have older siblings, for example, they seem to get more infections as well. Uh, children who have older older siblings siblings, uh, their their bodies seem to be more inflamed than the ones that don't. But still, the children who have older siblings they tend to get their microbiome on the body, so the bacteria that ha- they have in the body tends to mature faster than the children that the, than the children that don't don't have older siblings. And the maturation of the microbiome is linked to decreased asthma. So if you have a more mature microbiome by the by age one, then that wouldn't put you at less of a risk for developing asthma, right? So there are like lots of these associations going in one way or another, and in contradicting ways sometimes, right? So, yeah. It's, actually, yeah, it's actually, a you know, it's kind of a mess to be
1: honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about another crazy aspect is, you know, the more diverse bacteria you have in your lungs, let's say, when you're very young, the Ooh. more bacteriophages you'd attract for those bacteria. Who knows what the phage action does and how it shapes the... Uh, you know the, the the products of the the phage lysing the the bacteria in your lungs, and mm. I mean, who knows? There's so much to look at; it's crazy.
2: Yeah, and that's 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 actually, I mean, that's actually the thing that I'm working with at the moment. So, so the the, the, the real thing that I'm working with here at COPSAC at the moment, I'm not even looking at the bacteria. That's most of my office mates who are working on that. What I'm looking at is actually viruses in the body, and especially bacteriophage. You know, those are the ones that I'm looking at. And this is kind of like very much cutting edge you know, so, so not a lot of people have looked at the virome at the moment, you know, and also you need to distinguish between the viruses that infect us, you know, the human virome, or, or sorry, the viruses within the human virome that infect human cells, and then the viruses within the human virome that infect bacteria, right? And so, for example, you know, the, th- the stuff that I'm working with is the gut virome, and what we see there is that, you know, uh, I think in the gut we have like 300 different species of bacteria at any given point, plus and minus. I mean, there's a major variation when you look at one individual or another. But most people tend to have around like 300 different species of bacteria, right? And we know for us humans, for example, we're just one species of living being, right? And we have, I think, just if you look at the pathogenic viruses, the ones that actually cause disease, there are like several hundred different pathogenic viruses that cause disease in humans. Those are the pathogenic ones, and then who knows all the other viruses that are not pathogenic, because that, will, because this is This is what we think, you know, if it's like bacteria where most bacteria tend to be good for the body, that's what it really seems. Maybe most viruses are even good, you know, for, for, and so maybe most viruses, we don't even know because they don't cause any symptoms. But the point is that one species of animal on the planet has like at least a couple of hundred different viral species that infect it, And that seems to apply for every species on the planet. So like every species on this planet might have around two to 300 different species of viruses that infect only that species. And of course that also applies to the two and 300 or 300 species of bacteria that you have in the gut. Right? So if you have 300 species of bacteria in the gut and each of those species are infected by 300 different viruses, then you have like a way more species of phage or bacterial phage in the gut than you have bacterial species. Right? So the diversity <laughs> of viruses on the body is way higher than the diversity of bacteria.
1: Well, you yeah, know, I was in the, is there knowledge about that? Like, do bacteria have multiple bacteriophages, or do they only have one that goes after mm-hmm. them? I mean, I know that you know macroscopic organisms like us and dogs and whales, mm-hmm. and you know we have many viruses that affect us. But it, does that still prove out at the uh, single cell level for bacteria? I mean, it,
2: it really seems to, to be honest. So, 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 uh, when, some of the most well characterized organisms, bacteria. Some of the most well organized, uh, no, sorry, well characterized bacteria, like E. coli. You probably you heard about E. coli, right? I think E. coli has at the moment, and that's only the ones that that the one that's the most studied, right? So the reason, so so the fact that it's the most studied, so that's also why people know a lot of phage for E. coli because it's just so well studied. And I think around 300 different bacteriophage are known for E. coli at the moment. And then you have like a, 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 a bacterium like Streptococcus. Streptococcus is really important for the industry. You use it to make cheese and make yogurt and stuff like that, right? So there's a lot of interest in knowing phages for streptococcus because the dairy industry needs to protect their streptococci from those phage. And I think for streptococcus, 500 different phages are known. And that's just one species of bacteria, right? And and those those phages didn't start coming into existence when we started using streptococcus. No, For, for industry, those have existed for eons and eons because we can look at the phage and we can see that a lot of them are completely unrelated to each other. So it's not like they all all just came into existence as soon as we started using it in the dairy industry. So it does in fact seem to be the case that every bacterium on earth, every species of bacterium on earth is infected by maybe three or 500 different species of phage. And so that means that the diversity of viruses on this planet is way higher than the diversity of, you know, cellular organisms, you know, and that starts putting into perspective, you know, what is the role of viruses? What is the role of bacteriophages? It seems to me, you know that bacteriophages and viruses are a lot more important for life on earth and the direction that life on earth is taking since they are a lot more common you know they're a lot more common than we are as cellular organisms right and 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 and, and i think you know there's been a lot of focus you know it used to be it used to be, you know, when the first bacteria were discovered back in like 1500 something by this guy called Antony van Leeuwenhoek, who made the first microscope, he saw these bacteria and he thought it was really cool that he could take a sample from his mouth and he found that there were all kinds of like creepy crawly things, living things in his mouth. And he thought that was awesome, right? Because he had no idea that bacteria could cause disease by then, back then. And then you, can, you have Louis Pasteur in the 1800s, who was the first person to figure out that bacteria actually cause disease. They cause disease and they make food rot. So basically milk will go bad if you don't kill the bacteria and stuff. And that was the first time when human beings made the link, like 300 years after the discovery of bacteria, that was the first time when human beings made the link that bacteria actually are cause a lot of disease. Before that, it was not even known, right? And then since Louis Pasteur and up until around maybe a decade ago, The prevailing view on bacteria has been that they cause disease and we need to disinfect and we need to get rid of them and stuff like that. And then all of these studies start coming out with the human microbiome, which starts showing that, you know, people... Who have the wrong bacteria on their on their bodies or inside their bodies end up having a higher risk for depression, higher risk for obesity, higher risk for asthma, higher risk for cancer, higher risk for heart disease, diabetes, you name it. Right, all of these different chronic diseases that we don't have any idea about. It turns out that a lot of them are associated with having the wrong bacteria on the body. And if you have bad bacteria on the body, you're at higher risk for having these diseases. And one one of the major take-home messages from these studies is that the vast majority of bacteria on the body seem to be good for you. Actually, they seem to be good for your body. So the more of a diverse microbiome you have uh, uh, on the body, inside the body, the better it is for your, you know, clinical outcome for these different chronic diseases. Now, I will grant you that asthma might be an exception for this, at least in terms of the lung microbiome, as you, as I said earlier, where I said you know, asthma associated with a higher lung microbiome diversity. But for example, if you, have a, if you have a high diversity of gut bacteria, then you're at lower risk for asthma. So gut bacteria, it seems to be, you know, the gut, you want to have as many different bacteria as possible. And what that seems to indicate is that most bacteria on the planet are actually good for us. And when, if you do a tallying up of all the bacteria that are on the planet, I think there are like, it's recognized there are like 10 million species, but there are some estimates that say like 30 billion species you know, so it could be anywhere between 10 million and 30 billion species. And you look at the number of species of bacteria that can cause disease. It's like a hundred different species of bacteria. So So like,
1: here's here's a a question. So what do you think it looks like over time for, you know, our gut bacteria seem to be pretty persistent and they are resistant to shocks and all that. They're, you tend to have them for a while. Mm -hmm. So they're constantly being preyed upon by various phage. How Mm -hmm. do they persist in our gut? Do you think that they're, I guess they're kept in check, their numbers by, by phage and by availability, availability of nutrients. And like, what do you think the the you know the phage bacteria interaction looks like over time
2: in our guts, for instance? It's a good question. To be honest, you know, I don't know that much about those mechanisms that make those bacteria persist over time. Uh, you know, there are a lot of studies being done where people get fed penicillin and they basically flush out all their bacteria, and you know, then you know, a couple of years later, they end up having the exact same bacteria. Which is really weird. To be honest with you, I don't, I don't know what the mechanisms are for that. But, but you know, I, I'd like to just you know quickly finish my previous point because, sure. what, I think what I'm trying to say is this: you know, the more diverse of a you know human microbiome you have on your body, the more different bacteria you have on your body, the more protected you are against various chronic diseases. We think that has something to do with a lot of good bacteria on your body training the immune system to be able to distinguish good bacteria from bad bacteria right and and also about the ratio of good to bad bacteria that exists in nature so we have like a hundred million different species of good bacteria we have like 10 no or sorry 100 species of bad bacteria so the ratio of good to bad bacteria in nature is like one to one million right so the vast majority of bacteria on earth are good for us you know they're doing good important stuff in nature and they, they, they're not able to infect us, you know. They're not able to cause infections. Well, why,
1: why, why characterize them as good or bad? I would, I would think that the uh, the niche in mm. which the bacteria occupies and its mm. its ability to function as a you know as a partner in that niche or not really is what constitutes it.
2: That's I mean, true. I, you know, that's, like that's, if that's, you
1: look at oral bacteria, yeah. they're there, they're good, they help us, but mm. they show up in like afrosporotic plaques. So when yeah. they leak from like interaction with the bloodstream in the mouth and then they get to places where it's not their normal niche now they seem to be quote-unquote bad but they're not they're just trying to live in this new place
2: right and and you know that's the that's the proper way of viewing it because nothing in biology obviously is good and bad right and and so i think what i'm just trying to say is that there's just been this prevailing view before that bacteria were kind of bad and so now we're trying to see that the real, in real life, it's a lot more complex. And the number of bacteria that we consider to be bad is completely dwarfed by the number of bacteria that don't, don't do anything and that leave us alone or don't do anything, even if we, they come in contact with us. And the only what, what, what I'm trying to, the, the problem that I'm trying to solve in research, you know, the, the research that I'm doing, the problem that that research is trying to solve is basically, we're trying to ask the same question for viruses. Because viruses, I think our view on viruses has been that they cause disease. But what if most viruses are actually good for, you know, and we don't know right now because the only viruses that we've been focusing on up until this point have been the ones that cause disease. And so we've been completely blind to the viruses that could be good for us. Right. And so right now, what we're doing here at CopSec is that we're looking at the viruses that exist in the bodies of these children in the gut, you know, at age one uh, at age one year. And we're comparing those viruses to the different, you know, clinical phenotypes that they have and stuff like that. That's still work in progress. But what we do see is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of species of viruses in one single human individual. And we found this particular family of viruses called Anelloviruses, which are human viruses. So even though most viruses in the gut of any person are viruses that will infect the plethora of different bacteria that live in the gut, right? So most of the viruses are going to infect the bacteria. There are some viruses that infect actually human cells, maybe the gut cells and the gut lining and stuff like that, you know? So there's a particular family of viruses called anelloviruses. And what we saw that any particular, any any one of the children that we're following will have several hundred or, you know, between 100 and 200 different species of this family of anelloviruses, which is... You know, these really small viruses not much is known about them, but most kids are infected by not, not only one, but like a 100 different one of these, ones of these, right? And adults are also infected by hundreds and hundreds of viruses, maybe, that we still don't really know about, and that don't give us any sick symptoms that don't make us sick, right? So if it's the case with, with viruses, as it's turned out to be with bacteria, then maybe most of the viruses that the human body encounters during a lifetime will not make us sick. Maybe they might even have a positive effect by training the immune system, helping the immune system to distinguish, you know, good guys from bad guys and what really to attack, you know, and not to attack them and stuff like that. Right. So most of the stuff that the immune system encounters, it doesn't even attack. Right. And how does the immune system know what to protect us from, what not to, what to attack, what not to attack? You know, so those are, so some you, of the-
1: are you suggesting that our immune system is a collective intelligence between our cells Bacteria within us and viruses within us.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't even know to be honest. But you know, it starts to feel like that to me, at least. You know, with with the stuff that I'm working on, and you know, with all the connections that there are between the bacteria and the viruses and the immune system and all of that kind of stuff. You know, it's very it It
1: makes sense. I mean, we're holobionts. We're not just like people with bacteria that are parasitic on us. Like we are ourselves. We are bacteria. We are also viruses. I mean. We are this creature so why wouldn't they all inform each other to uh, to help our immune system
2: you know yeah and it's not it's not like they necessarily have a purpose you know it's not like they're intent on doing that necessarily but you know i think over the long term if you look at the billions and billions of years that life has been on earth then you see that you know systems that are sustainable are going to sustain obviously they're going to last a lot longer and systems that are basically self destructive they're going to die out very, very quickly, right? And so there's going to be a selection for systems that are able to sustain for a much longer time. And so that means that you know bacteria are going to want to have a good relationship with us, so are probably viruses, and the immune system is probably going to want to have a good relationship with different bacteria and viruses so that the whole thing can persist for a lot longer, right? Otherwise, that's just not going to happen. We're not going to see those kinds of things. I mean, at the moment, for example, this This, uh, this coronavirus thing, I mean, that's a bad virus, right? I mean, that's a virus that kills people, you know, and, and, you know, is that a kind of a virus that's going to hang out, you know, for us with us for like a long time, you know, like for like millennia or decades, I don't think so because we're doing everything we can to try to stop it. Right. Whereas viruses that don't do anything to us that don't cause any harmful symptoms, they probably, you know, they get to hang around for a lot longer. So, so yeah. Oh. (laughs)
1: <laughs> here's, here's a real easy question I'm, I'm just joking what do you you know you, you know i'm sure that we have like eight or nine percent of our dna is from endogenized exactly. viruses from previous yeah. attacks so how do you think that endogenized dna is recognized by let's say our bacteria or viruses mm. that interact with ourselves mm. you think there's any recognition is that part of our immunity you know mm. what, what's the interaction there
2: who knows yes I mean it's a really good question, right and I have no idea and and I, I don't even know whether there has to be a recognition with the viruses and uh, and with the bacteria, but I mean that 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 all of that DNA you know definitely serving a purpose one purpose or the other, even if it's not being recognized again by the viruses or the bacteria it is serp- serving some purpose, and we can see that because you know it's you know it's regulating a lot of the genes you know that that a lot of the genes that 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 make up us and, and make up our bodies the way that they are, are being regulated by these, you know, spaces, you know, spacers of DNA long, several million base pair of spacers that wouldn't have been that length if there hadn't been, you know, tons of viral infections on top of each other, basically inflating our entire DNA. And when you look at our DNA, I think it's like only like 1% that codes for proteins that make up the enzymes that make up the body basically. And the other 99% is just like what people used to call junk DNA, but it came from somewhere and, and I think the prevailing theory is that that DNA has basically accumulated from viral infection on top of viral infection on top of viral infection. So viruses that have kept integrating into our genome into, until it's completely inflated in size, right? So what does that say about us as an organism that 99% of our DNA is viral DNA, right? You know, you know I, think, I think that sends a signal that viruses might not be all that bad. And if you look at bacteria, it's a lot the same way. You know, some of the bacteria that we're, most of the bacteria that we're working with in the gut, they're infected by like five or six different proviruses at a time. A provirus is a virus that it has integrated into the bacterial host, you know, bacterial chromosome. So it's just living its life dormant on the bacterial DNA. And that bacterium is infected by five or six proviruses that we can recognize. Those are only the ones that we can recognize. There might be maybe 10 times that amount, right? So even if you look at a bacterial cell, you know the, the amounts of viruses that are associated with that cell. You know, outnumber that bacterium by a number of one to fifty, maybe, because there are fifty different viruses that are carried in that bacterium alongside it. Right. So what does that but say? How do, you, how, how do you
1: know? Yeah. How do you know that a bacteria has persistent viruses in it? Is it because you can see there either DNA or RNA strands that are persistent that are within the bacteria that? don't seem to have any function?
2: Yeah, I mean, we look at their DNA, right? And then we can see areas of the DNA encode like stuff like housekeeping genes. These are the genes that all bacteria need to have. Stuff like, you know, DNA polymerase, RNA polymerase, ribosomes, stuff like that, right? And then you have other areas of the bacterial genome where we don't know what they encode. Those are like tons and tons of genes. We have no idea what their function is. And for a long time, you know, it's just been assumed, okay, that's just hypothetical proteins. We have no idea. And then all of a sudden, as more and more viruses start getting characterized through these virome studies, like the one that we've done, we start seeing, okay, here we have the DNA sequence of a virus. Hey, wait a minute. This virus, you know, seems to exist inside this bacterium as well, you know? So, so the more we start learning about viruses by sequencing them independently the more we can start making links to parts of bacterial genomes. So it seems that those bacteria were already infected by that virus, you know? And so that's, that's how we're finding out, you know, there's lots and lots of areas on the bacterial chromosome that we don't know anything about. And we're being conservative. We're being conservative about, about those. We're just saying, we don't know anything about that, but it's when we see areas on a bacterial genome that, that look identical to a virus that we already know, that's where we can know. Right. And so by those estimates at least five or six prophages are, are occur on most bacterial genome, you know. And, and, and so and the, the bacterium is keeping those for a reason, you know, because it, it would have thrown, thrown them away. Often when we would bring these bacteria in the lab, they start throwing out useful, you know, unuseful parts of their genome. And some of the first things that go are these prophages, but other parts of the DNA also start vanishing until the bacterial genome gets streamlined for a lab environment, which is a lot safer maybe. Than outside in nature and some of the parts that get shed are some of these viruses but also other mobile parts of bacterial dna get basically shed right so it seems that a lot of these bacteria are living kind of a i don't know like a mutual symbiotic life with a lot of these viruses right and i think we have to ask ourselves you know as a human species you know as hum- as human beings that are trying to understand biology you know that if viruses are so pervasive pervasive as they are in the entire biosphere that we even carry them on our own genomes then what does that say about the nature of viruses? You know, are they might not really be that bad, you know? And, 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 and so viruses that cause disease might be the exception, and most viruses might actually be good for it.
1: I think it says that life, an essential component of life, is virus. It's virus DNA, and that there's a vast library of viral DNA and RNA out there that instructs and guides evolution and, I, I mean, affects all life dramatically.
2: Mm and 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 it does seem that you know viruses, because they're quite simple, you know viruses have maybe like only a hundred you know only a hundredth or a thousandth of a number of the number of genes that we have, right so a bacterial genome will have like maybe four thousand or five thousand genes. a bacterial virus or a bacteriophage might only have like fifty genes, so that's like a hundred times less genes than the bacterium itself and so A virus is a much more simple system than a bacterium. A bacterium has lots of moving parts, you know, that need to go up and they need to function together in order for the bacterium to survive. As for the virus, it only has like these maybe 10 or 15 moving parts that need to go together. So it's a lot easier for a a virus to experiment with the contents of its genome. And that's what we see that viruses do all the time. They always mutate, you know, they mutate back and forth. They even have these specialized, you know, RNA or DNA polymerases, which replicate the genome. So when, whenever the virus needs to divide itself into two, it will use its own DNA polymerase, not all viruses, but a lot of viruses will use their own DNA polymerase to copy its genome because it, it wants DNA polymerase that will incorporate more errors into the, the, the copying process itself because it's more tolerant to those errors. And those errors in the long run are going to start driving the evolution of that virus, right? So when viruses, they copy themselves imperfectly, they can afford to do so because they're so much simpler And when they do copy themselves imperfectly, then they will evolve a a lot faster. And what we often see is that, you know, there can be these areas on the genome of of a virus that don't encode anything. And then all of a sudden you have a G that turns into an A, and then you have a start codon, an ATG. And then, you know, further down the line, you might, might have a TAA, which is a natural stop codon. And then all of a sudden, a gene is born, you know, spontaneously, and that is transcribed into RNA, which is then made into a protein. And then all of a sudden you have a protein with a random amino acid sequence that doesn't serve any purpose. But then maybe a few generations later, that protein might have acquired a few other mutations through the replication process of this, of this virus. And then all of a sudden you have a brand new protein that serves a function for that virus. It might help the virus, you know, Infect better, or it might help the bacterium that's carrying that virus or the human that's carrying that virus in some indirect way or the other. And so, what we see is that what we think is that a lot of the genes that we carry around as cellular organisms might have originated in viruses because viruses are a lot more efficient at generating new genes, generating new protein diversity. And there's this guy called Eugene Koonin who gave a talk at Copenhagen University a couple of years ago. Eugene Koonin, he's a you know, world renowned kind of virologist and, you know, genomicist or whatever. Yeah. And so, and so he was giving this talk and I don't know where he got that slide, but he showed this slide, which was really interesting. So when you look at all the proteins that are in nature, all the different proteins that carry out different functions, different enzymes and stuff like that. Right. So the number of different proteins that carry out different functions in all cellular organisms combined was like 20,000. I think it was around 20,000. That was the total number of protein diversity known in cellular organisms. And then he showed the same curve for like viruses. And I think it was like 100,000. I don't know. It was at least like five-fold higher. So it seems that by, even though we know fewer viruses than we know cellular organisms, we could, because we're just getting started in terms of sequencing viruses, they already, you know, they already surpassed the amount of protein diversity that cellular organisms have. So there are some indications that show that new proteins evolve inside viruses then they get transferred to cellular organisms so that cellular organisms can start using them to power life right and and so 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 viruses are these labs that invent new proteins and once they get you know once there's a, a proof of concept that these proteins actually can be used for something useful then they trickle down into into, you know, cellular organisms by genome integrations and stuff like that. And then cellular organisms like us start using them for, you know, for our stuff, you know, whatever we want to use them for. And there's several examples of this. One classical example is, you know, life can be divided into three different domains. You have bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes, right? And bacteria and archaea, they kind of look like each other. They're single cellular. But when you look at archaea, they have an internal machinery, which is very close to what we have. So they look like eukaryotes that just look like bacteria, right? And so at archaea, they have several origins of replication. So when they start to divide their chromosomes, they do it at several times simultaneously, like we, we, we do, whereas bacteria mostly just have one origin of replication. And so this requires them to have several DNA polymerases, which archaea do. And so we were looking at these archaea called Sulfolobus, and it turns out that two out of three of their DNA polymerases were from viruses right? We could see basically just a sequence of those DNA polymerases. So it seems that a lot of core genes in cellular organisms that carry out vital functions have been inherited from viruses, you know, millions and millions of years ago. And that process is just like continuing on and on and on is what it seems. That's
1: amazing. Um...
2: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs>
1: no, no. It's, well, no, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot too. I mean, it's, yeah, it's so complex. It's insane, but it's very interesting
2: yeah it's pretty cool and so and so that we're we're just trying to figure out you know I'm trying to figure out maybe you know i i i i, I can understand that it's controversial instead of the, especially in these covid nineteen times to say that viruses are good, but I'm trying to figure it out especially with these data we have so much data on these children right, and we also know which viruses they have on their bodies, maybe we can try to figure out which viruses are good for these kids instead of just focusing on the bad ones all the time, so that's basically you know my mission yeah, no, right.
1: that's true. That's yeah. true. Well, very good. Uh, Shiraz, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to, uh, you know, to see papers you're working on and
2: experiments? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, I mean, they can, first of all, they can go to copsac.com. So C-O-P-S-A-C.com. And there they can learn of all, uh, about all the research that we're doing on the children, you know, and their asthma and stuff like that, right? And then okay. other than that, I think, uh, what would be the other way of doing it? I think if you search on NCBI... You know, most of my most of my research up until I got employed here at Copsack was on CRISPR, and you, you probably know about CRISPR, right?
1: Yeah, it selectively allows you to cut DNA. It's, it comes from bacteria.
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I was studying it as an immune system against phage infections and in bacteria and in archaea, especially in archaea. Right. So if people, you know, look me up on PubMed, my name, Shiraz Shah, and PubMed, most of the papers they're going to see are about CRISPR. And so I guess that's also another way of doing it. But I think com is probably the best place to go. Okay
1: very good yeah. well, Shraza, you got a lot of work to do so get working <laughs> I'm just kidding yeah, but uh, thank thanks for coming on the podcast I appreciate it yeah
2: thanks and stay safe
1: thank you, you too
0: you've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs if you like what you hear be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and want to be smarter than everybody else